Amen. Good morning, church. I want to talk this morning about what it means for Jesus to be your champion. Uh, and I think Hebrews chapter 2 is going to help us understand what that means. So if you open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, that's where we have been the last few weeks. That's where we will be all the way up to Thanksgiving. There's a man named Charles Finney. He's one of the greatest evangelists who have ever walked uh, in our country for hundreds of years. His story was told. He lived in the 1820s and he lived around Rochester, New York. And it is, it is told that over 100,000 people came to the Lord through his preaching, his teaching, his leadership. Can you imagine that? A revival of that many people. And it, and it was a kind of revival that historians said that this revival didn't just impact church attendance, but crime dropped in the area. Liquor stores had to close because alcoholics were giving up alcohol. Uh, there was just this movement of God throughout the entire city that was felt because of this revival. Now, if you study revivals much, there are a few themes in revivals throughout the history of the world. Singing is usually involved. And singing is involved in revivals, not in the kind of way where people just like making a joyful noise and trying to hit the right notes. It's that singing was transporting people's hearts and there was expression and there was movement. And, and many revivals have happened through charismatic settings where people are giving hearts, mind, body, and soul to the Lord through song. Revivals often had sound uh, preaching that was taking place. So the spoken word of God was being heard and God was convicting people through powerful preachers. And there was prayer and not just kind of prayer that we're offering up like magic to God so he can do some hocus pocus or we're trying to appease God. It was heartfelt prayer, praying to a God who isn't just a God of history, but a God who is alive and active today. And in Rochester, around 100,000 people came to know the Lord. And people filled churches and they talk about, I mean, there's stories of the joy of the Lord that just filled people because they understood that what they were called into wasn't just a life insurance plan, but it was a whole new way to live. The book of Hebrews opens us up to the greatness of Jesus. I have a nephew, his name's Jed. A couple of years ago, Jed went up to my brother and Jed said, hey dad, what does RIP stand for? And most people would know RIP stands for rest in peace. You see it on bumper stickers, people tattoo this on their bodies, you see it in tombstones, rest in peace. And my brother looked at his son, Jed, and said, Jed, it means rest in peace. And Jed looked at my brother and said, oh, that makes sense. I thought it meant rise in power, which I kind of like that. That it's rise in power, that it's, it's knowing that the grave doesn't get the last word, that Jesus is greater than, than everything. It kind of bothers me today how we toss around this statement that it'll change your life. And we put this on so many things. I mean, you, you watch commercials sometimes and you'll see people say things like or make arguments that, hey, this new vacuum cleaner, it'll change your life. This new protein shake, it'll change your life. This new diet, it'll change your life. This right here, this will change your life. When it comes to changing a life, and I think why it bothers me so much is this, only Jesus can change a life. There are other things that can enhance a life, can help a life, can make your life a little better, but only Jesus has the power and the ability to change a life forever. In the book of Hebrews, and one of the reasons I love this book, I've been drawn to this book, and I think it is so relevant for us today, is that the book of Hebrews is written to people who, they, they were kind of struggling in their faith. They, they were drifting away a little bit. They were fading from the core convictions in their life. Some of them were stepping back in the traditions that they had honored growing up. Some of them were just giving up because when they looked around the world, it just seemed so hard and so full of darkness. Like, is, it, is there any hope out there? And they were just drifting. 
And I don't think the book of Hebrews is written to people who chose to deny Christ as the Lord of their life or the Savior of their life. I think they believed a lot of those things. They just didn't practice faith anymore. And you see this all the time now, right? Where people hold on to sound doctrine and their beliefs, yet they fade from the church. And they fade from friends who are rooted in Christ. And they fade from their prayer life. And then they, they just drift. And Hebrews is written to people who were drifting. Because here's what happens. Any time in your life that you soften your allegiance to Jesus, allegiances to other things in the world and to other people grow in your life. Because it's like your heart has this bucket, an allegiance bucket, and the allegiance bucket is never dormant. It's either given to something or someone, and if it's not being given to Jesus, it's being given to other things. So the book of Hebrews is written to try to awaken people. That anytime you drift from your confession or drift from your allegiance, you're being, you're being called back into this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says this. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For instance, the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? And I want to stop right there just for a minute because in in verse 1 you see a theme that shows up multiple times throughout Hebrews. And it's, hey, I I want you to hear this again so that you don't drift away from this. I've talked the last couple of weeks about the eye-ear gap, which is something that I think would have connected to the church in Hebrews. And I think it connects with some of you too. And the eye-ear gap that is talked about is that sometimes you hear something with your ear, but you don't see it with your eye. So you hear about the promises of God or you come here on Sundays and you hear me talking about what it means to, be, to live a life with Jesus. But with your eye, what you see in the world is that you, you see as if chaos reigns and there's destruction and dysfunction. So you hear one thing, but you see another thing. And how do you navigate and stay close to God when that eye-ear gap just seems to widen? So back in the 80s, there was a leader of a major company in the U.S. And there was one day a journalist wrote an article attacking that leader. Attacking the leader, some, some personal things in the leader's life and other things too. But, and this journalist so wrote this pretty scathing article about this leader. But when they published it, what they did is they wanted to show photos of the leader. So they just went, and, and the stock photos they chose were actually images of the leader like smiling and shaking hands and giving hugs So though the article was scathing, trying to get people not to like the leader anymore, the photos they chose backfired on what they meant the article to be. Because the photo showed a leader who was shaking hands and hugging and like joy. So so someone who was in connection with the leader reached out to the journalist and thanked the journalist for the article. And the journalist said, why are you thanking me and praising me? It was a negative article. And the person said, because this, anytime there is a battle between the ear and the eye, the eye wins every single time. The eye wins every time. That was in the 80s. In the year 2019, we are visual people. We look at screens. We don't hear very well. We don't listen to each other well. We don't listen to God well. And it feels like there are times that when there was a battle between the ear and the eye, the eye wins every time. But it's not that case when it comes to the kingdom of God. 
And this is what the church reminds each other of. It's why I didn't sing it a minute ago. Some of you got so caught up in that song that applause just busted out after the song. It's because we're declaring something and you heard it coming from our hearts that death's not gonna hold us anymore. That when it comes to the kingdom of God, the eye doesn't win every time. What we hear in the word of God sinks deep into our hearts and it matters. So what you have heard, don't drift from what you've heard in the past. And then verse 4, or later on in verse 3, uh, the second half of verse 3 is this. It was declared at first through the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him. And I really like how some versions place verse 4. It's that while God added his testimony by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So when God chooses to speak to people, God's going to appeal to all of our senses, God's going to speak, and through Jesus, we also learn that God doesn't just speak. God puts on display what it is God wants you to know, that God's going to appeal to your eyes and your ears and, and taste and all of your senses to awaken them to the power of God. And it's about bearing, it's about having a testimony. What has God done? The gifts of the church are dispensed so that we become more aware of what God is doing in our lives. So two questions for you. One is this. Are you able to articulate your testimony of what God has done in your life? And maybe that is about your conversion story, but are you able, when's the last time you've articulated to anyone, here's what God has done in my life, here's what God has redeemed me of, here's, here's how I sense the active nature of God in my life today. Like, are you able to articulate any of that? And the second question is this, what is the role God wants you to play in someone else's testimony in their life this week? Like the, what, what's the role God wants you to play to awaken someone's heart, to encourage them, to help bring a gift to life? Because when God does something in your own life, it's not just for you to enjoy, it's to dispense and help other people come to life, but we don't know how to help other people come to life if our own hearts aren't coming alive too. So whoever's writing Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, here, here's, here's how it goes. And this writer is going to pull from Psalm chapter 8. And it's not to angels that he was subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, and this is Psalm 8. What is humankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him? You have made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. And what I love right there, five, five through eight, is this author is appealing to a place in the Bible that talks about how God honors humanity. That everything God has created, everything God is in the process of creating, everything God has created and has set in motion, according to Psalm 8 and the Hebrews 2, 5 through 8, God honors that. And I think this is one of the reasons the church, especially in the Western world in America, struggles so much with evangelism today. It's because God honors and loves everything God has created, but I'm not sure we want to honor everything God has created. And when stereotypes are alive in our hearts and in our minds, do we really see people as worth developing relationships with so that hopefully we can speak the good news of Jesus to them somehow, some way? I live from a much better place in my life when I wake up every day saying, okay, whoever is in front of me today, whether it's at work or at a grocery store, wherever it may be, a neighbor who I pass coming down my, my street, past my house, can I honor them the way God wants me to honor them? Can I treat them as people who were made in the image of God and when this happens, kingdom connections happen.
But I want you to see something. Because last week, one of the things I talked about is throughout Hebrews, one thing the author, author of Hebrews wants you to know is that Jesus is greater than anything you want to fill the blank in with. And in chapter 1, verse 14, there's this statement about angels because he wants you to know Jesus is greater than angels. And the statement about angels in chapter 1, verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So the purpose of angels is to serve. Angels are servants of God. Angels don't save you. Angels aren't called by God to redeem you. Angels aren't what we base our trust in. We don't surrender to angels. We don't bow to angels. Angels are servants of God. Now, if the statement was made, angels serve, yet Jesus fill in the blank. How would you fill in the blank? Like, angels serve, and Jesus what? And there are a lot of things we could put in that blank that are true. Jesus conquers, Jesus saves, Jesus heals. But Hebrews 2 does something different. Angels serve. And Jesus reigns because Jesus, in chapter, nine, chapter 2 verse 9 says this. But we do see Jesus now, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Angels serve, Jesus suffers. How about that? Like most of us probably wouldn't fill in a blank that way. Angels serve, Jesus suffered. Because he suffered death so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He took on death. I know every Sunday in the life of our church, and if you've ever been in a church that takes communion every Sunday, every Sunday there's an element in a worship service where we reflect on the death of Jesus and what it means for us. But there are also moments throughout my life where the death of Jesus and the cross of Jesus has just been made more real to me. When I was 16 years old, and I share this story once a year in the life of our church, it's, it's the summer when God broke into my life, gave me a whole new reason to live, opened up my eyes, but it was also a year in my life that I was immersed in some pretty intentional sin in my life. And as God convicted me of some of that sin, there was a season of about three weeks where I was just kind of in, I, I guess, a depression. I was just in a place where I, just, I was asking a lot of questions like, is the forgiveness of God really that great? Is the, is the grace, can the grace of God cover me even through some of the things I've done? And it was then that the cross of Jesus became more real to me because I sensed Jesus saying that everything you've done, what I did, is able to take care of all of that. But what I needed from Jesus, because I, I, I don't know if it was how I was raised in a church or what, I just kind of felt like, well, if Jesus chooses to redeem me and allow me to move into the future with him, it's going to be because he has reluctantly chosen to let me move into the future with him, or he's been very hesitant about this. And there was just this awakening in my life at the age of 16 that Jesus doesn't reluctantly save people. There wasn't a vote in heaven and it's like, well, we voted. And 55% of the angels said, okay, we're going to move with you into the future. It's that Jesus delights when we come to him, surrendering anything to him. Redemption is unleashed. Salvation is unleashed. Connection is made. And there was this awareness that Jesus died for the world. But in that moment, what I needed to know is that Jesus died for me. And that Jesus was able to conquer all the sin that I had committed in my life. At the age of 18, I hung on a cross one day. I wasn't nailed to it, but I hung on one. We were at church camp, 
And there was a cross that a teacher had built and it just had ropes in it. So I wasn't nailed to it, but I was a volunteer and I had to, I had to hang on this cross by rope for 10 to 15 minutes. And I was 18, I was fairly fit, and, and I just say that to say, as I hung there just for 10 or 15 minutes, when I got off that cross, I was overwhelmed, I was weeping to think. For 10 to 15 minutes, I was in pain. My shoulders are hurting. And to think of the physical pain and suffering Jesus endured, just the physical pain alone was enough to be nailed to a cross, to hang on a cross, But then the thought of Jesus also bearing the sin of the world. That every day God prolongs Jesus coming back is a day that we are made more aware of how strong Jesus was on the cross. Because that's another day where sin is, that Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. And then last year when I went to Israel, we had a chance to spend a little bit of time in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Which Jesus spent quite a bit of time of there praying. But then there was one place we went to, Caiaphas' house, which if you read in the Gospels, the night after Jesus was already bleeding and in physical pain, he went to Caiaphas' house. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but in Caiaphas' house, it said, and most people believe, this really isn't disputed by people, is that when he was in Caiaphas' house, at some point, any slave, anyone who was arrested, who came into his house, and they waited until the next morning to do something with them, they were placed in this dungeon in Caiaphas' house. They were lowered down into this room. Because if they have somebody, somebody who's arrested in his house, Caiaphas isn't going to let them just hang out in the living room until they decide what they're going to do next. So they placed him in the dungeon. And we went down in there. And there were a lot of tears flowing to think that the Son of God, the Jesus we serve, the Savior of our lives, the Lord of the world, was down in this room, bleeding, suffering. Not because he reluctantly went to the cross, but because he willingly endured the shame and suffered. Angels serve. But what makes Jesus so great isn't just that Jesus conquered, it's that he conquered conquered through suffering and verse 9 says this in chapter 2 that we do see Jesus who suffered death in verse 10 is this and bringing many sons and daughters to glory it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the champion of their salvation perfect through what he suffered now check this out get a load of this because here's what the conquering Jesus does Now, some of your Bibles in verse 10 talk about how he's the pioneer of salvation, which I think, I don't think that's a wrong translation. I like the idea of champion of salvation. This isn't just because I like the idea of champion more than pioneer. I think it's what the verse is getting at. He's the champion of your life. He's the champion of salvation. And here's what happens in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So when it came time for Jesus to choose what kind of relationship he was going to have with humanity, he didn't choose master-slave or anything else. He chose family. So the conquering one who conquered through suffering is going to connect with us and call us his brothers and sisters. And here's what happens later on. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And he says, and now you have Jesus. 
It's like he's in a church with people. And three things are declared from the mouth of Jesus in verse 12. One is, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, it's Jesus crying out, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. And this does something to me. Thinking about Jesus being in the presence of his brothers and sisters. And here's what's coming from the mouth of Jesus. That Jesus is in our presence declaring God's name. Declaring Jesus' trust in God. And declaring among us, here I am, and the children. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, all, I'm in this with you because I chose not just to hover up here or not just to dip my toe in, but I came all the way down to where you are. And here I am and the children God has given me. You know, back in the Bronze Age, so back like hundreds of years before Jesus, the way a lot of battles would go down is you'd have two groups, two kingdoms, and they would come together to fight. And the way some of them would fight the Bronze Age is you would choose your best warrior who would go up against the other team's best warrior, and whoever won took it all. Isn't that a crazy way to think about going to battle? Yet... I mean, the story that's maybe the most well-known story in our Bible went down like that, right? David and Goliath. We're going to choose our favorite. You choose your favorite. We're going to hope that our favorite doesn't pull a hammy in the middle of the fight because we need our person to win. And that's how they would fight. One day um, when I was 16, maybe 15, I was at a party in my neighborhood. And I went to Mesquite Poteet High School. And the next thing we knew is people from Mesquite High School came down our street because they wanted to come to our party. And Mesquite Poteet and Mesquite High School, the Mesquite High School Skeeters, that, that was their mascot, the Skeeters, all right? But we, we like they're, they're people and they start going back and forth. And then next thing we know is someone from our group named Philip wanted to fight somebody from their group. So their group chose a guy named Josh. So our group had Philip, their group had Josh, two of the most bold, courageous names you could think about to send to war for your people, right? Philip and Josh, it's like Mufasa. It just brings something with it. But then at the last minute, they chose to send Mata instead of Josh. So don't think Josh isn't courageous. I'm sure he was. They chose a guy named Mata and Mata was crazy. We knew stories about Mata. Mata was wild. Mata loved to fight. Every year in our city, the four high schools would have a Subway sandwich eating contest before football season. And Mata was always in it. And he would never blink as he ate Subway sandwich after Subway sandwich. He would reach in his pocket, pull out Pepto, open up a sandwich, pour Pepto on top, close it, and eat it without even blinking. Mata was crazy. <clears throat> And Mata won with one swing. It was over. Uh, <laughs> the, wrong, the wrong team won. No, but this is in the Bronze Age. It would go down like this. So when it came time for the kingdom of God to face the forces of darkness... The strategy of Jesus wasn't, hey, let Bellevue Baptist is the biggest church in town, so you guys go get the front line. Sycamore View, you flank them from behind. And the churches of Africa join in the front line. The churches of Asia, let's go over the top. What Jesus says, when it came time for like the kingdom of God and the powers of darkness to fight, it's like Jesus says, I've got this. And Jesus goes in. And Jesus suffers. 
And Jesus dies, and Jesus comes out victorious, the champion of our salvation. And in verse 14 through 18, just let this sink in. It's since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but it's Abraham's descendants. It's, it's humanity. For this reason, he had to be made, made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. And this needs to give comfort to someone in the room today. He is able to help those who are being tempted. But he came all the way down to where we are. So Hebrews 2 lets us know a couple of things about Jesus. Number one, he, he took on the powers of darkness. He took on the enemy. And he won. Now with your eye, we see the enemy doing things all over the place today. And there are days it's like, man, I believe that Jesus won, but it sure does feel like the enemy's winning. Jesus took on the enemy and he won. The enemy's a sore loser. So one thing Satan wants us to believe today is, hey, maybe I can't change your confession to Jesus. But maybe I can try to lower your moral standards in life. Maybe I can't change your allegiance or your confession but can I slowly pull the joy of the Lord out of you so you can't be a witness in the world anymore? Maybe I can't keep you from going to church, but can I make you somebody who goes to church and complains about everything and never encourages a heart? But Jesus took on the enemy and he won. So live victoriously. Number two is Jesus took on the fear of death. What I love so much and why this is taking us to communion now for four or five weeks is, is that in 14 and 15, it says Jesus like took on the fear of death and he won. So you don't have to live in that fear anymore. Because fear is not a fruit of the spirit. Fear often hinders people from living in the joy and adventure of God. You don't have to live with it anymore. Jesus took it on and, and, he, and he won. But on this side of eternity, we still suffer. And what Hebrews 2 and what Hebrews 4 and what Hebrews 5 will let us know is you don't suffer alone through Jesus coming in human flesh. Like Jesus knows what it's like to be where you are. I like how one person says it. He said, God's love does not protect us against suffering, but it protects us in all suffering. But God is present through it all. So Hebrews 2 is this. Here are four points. For Hebrews 2 gives us, you can just take a picture of this. If you want, write them down quickly. The Son of God had to share humanity in order to, number one, experience death on behalf of others. Number two, to bring us to glory with Jesus. Number three is to destroy our adversary, the devil. And number four is to become a fully qualified high priest. Jesus is both champion and priest. He's not just one who wants to liberate you. He liberates to set us free and then gives us access to God, complete access. That kind of access we have, it's not just a one time a day kind of access. It's not a uh, hope, your, hope your card works to have access. It's, it's undeniable, eternal access to God. He's a champion. He gives us access. So let me ask you this and let's end with this. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go ahead and go to the places where you're receiving people today. If Jesus is willing to be the champion of your salvation, what in your life is Jesus not willing to be the champion of?
If Jesus is willing to be the champion of the big things, Jesus is also willing to be the champion of the small things. He's the champion of your salvation, but he's also the champion of your greed, the champion of your home life, your work life, your stress, the champion of your need for control, the champion of a porn addiction, the champion of fear of, of, uh, of fear of tomorrow, champion of pride, champion of a hard heart. Jesus is the champion of anything that separates us from God and what God wants us to be. So are you open to being led by the one who gave it all for you? So that those of you in the room who have surrendered your life to Jesus before, come to Jesus today. And to those of you who never have surrendered your life to Jesus or confessed him as the Lord of your life, come to Jesus. We have prayer leaders and people here to receive you. Let's stand together and let's declare this song.